If you have your Bibles, you could open them to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And uh, we started a, uh, our sermon series on hereafter uh, last Sunday, uh, talking about what happens when I die. And so before we talk about today's subject, let me just give you a quick overview, a quick summary of uh, what we talked about. I'm just going to break it down into four statements that will apply to what we'll talk about today. The very first thing that we looked in Scripture and saw is that, number one, is that everyone will live forever. Everyone will live forever. There is immortality. When you die, uh, it doesn't just end. We will live forever. Number two is this. Your destination will either be in the presence of God in heaven or in torment in hell. Destination will either be in the presence of God in heaven or in torment in hell. There's no third option. Uh, Those are the two locations Scripture talks about that will happen once we die. Number three is your arrival is immediate. As soon as you take your last breath here, you take your first breath into your next destination. You take that next breath towards immortality. And then number four is your destination is your choice. Your destination is your choice. You've not been pre-wired to go one place or another. You get to make the choice as to where you want to spend eternity. And so as we go through this series and we talk about if you have two options, you have hell, you have heaven, What I want to do for you is to show you what God's Word says about both of those, and then you can make the choice as to where you feel like that you would like to spend eternity according to what God's Word uh, talks about. So today we want to talk about, is there a place called hell? Let me start out with this, and that is that hell is a reality. Hell is a reality. We live in a world where people don't want to talk about hell. They don't want to accept it as a reality. They just can't, can't believe that it would exist. Well, let's just help you walk through the Bible and let's use the Bible, uh, not just kind of what the culture says or what we think we feel, but what does God's Word say about this? Well, first of all, the Bible affirms it. <clears throat> There's a number of words in the Bible. I'm going to walk you through. You need to stay with me on these terms because I get this question a lot. And that is there are about three different terms that deal with the afterlife, and so I want to help you with that. The first one is the word sheol. You'll see many times in your translations where it says, so-and-so went down to sheol. And uh, sheol is used about 65 times in the Scripture, and the best way to interpret that is to use it as the word grave. Now, many scholars have kind of gone back and forth. Some originally had said that sheol meant hell. That when someone went down to Sheol, they went down to hell. However, when they began to read in the Old Testament and there were some good people that went down to Sheol, then they said, well, no, that couldn't be right. So really our best definition is when you think of Sheol is that that meant somebody died. Somebody went into the grave. But then the second word that we get is the word Hades, okay? Hades. And this word occurs 10 times in Scripture, Twice in Matthew, Luke, and Acts, and four times in the book of Revelation. And so with this book, this word, trying to understand what it means, it's kind of like Sheol. It's difficult to, to nail that down. There are some instances that they use the word Hades to mean the same thing as Sheol, which just felt it was a place of the dead. And it's where all the dead go. However, the Luke 16 passage that we'll look at later in the sermon 
Jesus puts a whole new look on Hades. And so Hades is not just a place of the dead, but it's a place of torment, of suffering, and punishment for the ungodly. This would be a definition. And it's the place of torment where the ungodly go for only the period between death and the future resurrection. I've already lost some of you. Just write this down, okay? It's a place of torment. We understand that. Well, ungodly go for only the period between death and the future resurrection. You say, whoa, what do you mean by that? We're going to talk more about this in the next two weeks. Just to basically lay it out. From a heaven standpoint, when you die, you automatically go to heaven. What is called, we'll talk about, it's an intermediate state until Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back at the second coming, it then says that we will get a resurrection body. And when you, are, when you get your resurrection body, that's a whole different deal. We'll talk about that. Same thing will happen is that when a person has died and they go to Hades to where there's punishment and torment, the Scripture teaches in Revelation 20 that there will be a time called the great white throne judgment. And at that time, that every person will be called up who was in Hades and there will be a final judgment that will take place. And that final judgment will lead them to the third word and that is the word hell. And the word hell is Gehenna. And when you look in the, in the Greek text, it is the word Gehenna. And whenever someone talks about hell, they use this word Gehenna. And it's used 12 times in all of Scripture. 11 times are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus says more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And so I think this is interesting for all the people who are, who are so thinking that Jesus is so lovey-dovey that there's no way he'd let anyone go to hell. He talked about it more than anybody else. So if you want to understand what hell is, you have to listen to what Jesus himself has said. And when it talks about Gehenna, he's talking about a place there in Jerusalem, as on the south part of Jerusalem, called the Valley of Hinnon. And it was the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And uh, into it were thrown all the filth and garbage of the city. When dead animals, they throw the dead animals in there. When criminals are executed, they throw those bodies in there. And so to consume all this garbage, there had to be fires that were burning and they were constantly burning. As those fires were burning, it's a place where there were maggots that were working in the filth. And whenever the wind would blow from that direction into the city, it was just a nasty smell. And at night, there'd be wild dogs that would be howling and gnashing their teeth as they fought over the garbage. So when you keep this in mind, the word Gehenna, people think, uh, relate to the Valley of Hinnon. And then you begin to read the times when Jesus talks about hell and he says there's flames, there's uh, the worm doesn't turn. He talks about there's gnashing of teeth and all that. It is a picture that they can relate to because this is what they see on the southern part of Jerusalem. And so he's using this as a scene, as a symbol of hell. And so whenever you see the word Gehenna, that is what is translated hell. And in essence, Jesus is asking them, do you want to know what hell looks like? Look at the Valley of Hinnon and get an idea. The burning, the gnashing of teeth. So if you had a definition of hell, it would be this. It is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. 
So you say, what's the difference in Hades and hell? The difference is Hades is temporary, hell is permanent. If you've got your Bibles, you you can hold on to Luke uh, 16. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. Last book of the Bible, chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, starting in the 11th verse, it talks about the great white throne judgment. He says, then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it from his present earth and sky flew away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is the final judgment. And it says they bring up the bodies and death and Hades. And so Hades, this temporary place of where torment takes place, then comes and is thrown into the lake of fire, which we see as hell. Jesus kind of used the same um, uh, connection in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. And in Mark 9, 43, he says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And so all of this, we see that the Bible affirms that there is a literal place called hell. And the one who affirms it more than anyone is Jesus himself. And so as he teaches about it, he talks about it, he showed them symbols of it, the Bible affirms that there is a hell. But let me tell you the second reason that there is the reality that there's a hell, and it is this. It is consistent with God's nature. It is consistent with God's nature. Now, this kind of flies in the face of what a lot of people would tell you. They say, no way. Good old God wouldn't let anybody go to some place of eternal punishment. How can you say it's consistent with God's nature? Well, when you take a look at God's nature, you realize that there are various attributes that God has, characteristics. And in part of those attributes, I want to take three attributes and let's just put those together. The first attribute is the one that we sang about, holy. He is holy, all right? Holy, holy, holy. Psalm number one in the old Broadman hymn. Will everybody remember that? Yes, yes we do, all right? The big joke at our house is I told my mom it was my favorite song growing up. Her response was, that's because it's the first song, Danny. (laughs) And I said, I know it, I love it. And holy, holy, holy. That is a part of God's nature. Holy, what that means is separation. Separation from sin and moral perfection. When you say that God is holy, it means he's separate from sin. He is morally perfect. His holiness and his purity stand apart. It is incomprehensible. It is unapproachable. We may fear God's power. We may marvel over his wisdom, but his holiness we cannot even imagine. To be holy, God does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is an incomprehensible fullness of purity. And it was interesting because as we were in our worship planning, it was Logan uh, Creasy who had, who had made the statement. He said, you know, I think it's, 
it's so hard for people to understand their sin because they just really can't understand the holiness of God. And that is so true. We, we try to talk about it. We try to preach about it. We try to sing about it. But we just can't comprehend what it means to be totally holy, pure, just the essence of pure, purity. This is God. So when you look at his character, the first thing you notice of his nature is that he is holy, which means he's separate from sin. The second uh, quality we have of God's nature is he is just. He is just. And because God is holy, he hates all sin. And his holiness demands that sin must be punished. Now, even in our own sense of justice, it demands that evil and wickedness be judged and punished. I mean, we know that. And it was interesting, uh, they said there were surveys that were taken after 9-11. And when they took the surveys after 9-11, and one of the questions was, do you believe in hell? It went up from 64% to 71%. More people believed in hell after 9-11. The reason was, is they said there should be some kind of judgment for the wicked. And so their thinking is, is that there must be some place for people that would do a heinous act like this. And so there needs to be extra punishment. Probably if you asked in that survey, most people would have given God the green light to open the gates of hell and escort in the 9-11 terrorists. And they would say, this is the right thing to do. Now I think, it's personal opinion, that because of a sense of justice, most people believe that there should be a hell. But they also believe it should be for other people <laughs> and not for themselves. And they could give you a list of those who they feel would qualify uh, for hell. I've never met a person that I've talked to about this, and they said, I believe I should be there too. Um, most people don't put themselves in there. Because you see, hell is only for the really bad people. Well, folks, let me give you some insight. We're all really bad. We're all really bad. We've all sinned, and we've all done bad things. And when you take God's holiness, okay, perfect purity, I don't care if you got one sin or a million sins, you are separated from that purity. And so because there's the holiness of God, now all of a sudden you've got the justice of God. And so we may not think that we deserve eternal separation from God, but since God is holy and heaven is perfect place, there's no way we can enter into his presence or his heaven in our sinful condition. There's no way. He's perfect. Heaven's perfect. You just can't come sauntering in filthy in sin. There's a separation. The reality of hell is consistent with God's nature of holiness and justice. And what should happen is that every one of us, every one of us, that when we finish this life and we die, we should go straight to hell. That's where we should go. That's what we deserve. There's nothing in us to where God should look down and say, hey, you're really a good person. Come on in. No, we are sinners. We are separated. But then that's where the third part of his nature comes in, and that is love. You have holiness, you have justice, and you have love. And in his love, what God did was he established ground rules for creation. That's his sovereign right. He's God. He gets to lay out the rules. And these are what the rules are. When you sin, you die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. There's a physical separation of your spirit and soul from your body. Now, all of us that have gone to funerals and you go to the visitation 
And as you go by and you shake hands and pray for the family, then you go by the casket and you see the loved one laying there. Now, no matter how good a job they do in fixing them up or put on a suit or a dress or whatever it is, when you look at them, what do you realize? They're not there, right? Now, you may come and say, oh, they look nice, but you know they're not there. They're lifeless. It is because their spirit and soul have left them. The wages of sin is death. That happens. We're going to die. But now look what God says. I love this. Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us. Here we come to love. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now God just entered in something new in the equation. Wages of sin is death. So tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my son, Jesus Christ. He's going to step out of heaven. He's going to live on earth. He's going to live a perfect life. And then he is going to die for your sins. He's going to pay the price for your sins. Wages of sin is death. Jesus, he's going to die and pay the penalty for your sin. Okay. So what happens? He died. He raised from the dead. So then what happens? Romans 10, 9. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Saved from the penalty of sin. If you do these things, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. And you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he says, you will be saved. Remember that verse? It says the wages of sin is death. There's something added to that verse. It's the second half of it. And it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Wages of sin is death. Every one of us is going to die. When all of us will die, there's a separation. But there's a free gift of God in his eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, stay with me on this one. Holiness, justice, in love. And I want you to think about the cross. When you think about the cross, at the cross, holiness and the justice of God come together demanding a payment for sin. And Jesus, the sinless son of God, voluntarily went to the cross and suffered for six hours on the cross. And God took all the sins and placed them on him. And when you see holiness and you see justice at the same time, you see the love of God. Because the love of God was demonstrated in that it was his own sinless son that took that punishment for you and me. It wasn't that he just picked out somebody and said, hey, you go over here. He took his own son, who's the only one who could have been an adequate sacrifice for our sins. And sent him and allowed him to die on the cross. So where the holiness and the justice came together, there was also the love that was there. And when he died on the cross, the Bible says that all of our sins were imputed to him. That word imputed is a banking term. It means we're paid to his account. So what was happening is that God looked at me and he says, Danny Wood, all your sins, I'm going to take them out of your account. I'm going to put them in Jesus's account. Your account's empty, no sins. Really? 
And guess what I'm going to do also? He then says, I'm going to impute the righteousness of Christ to you. That means I'm taking the righteousness of Christ and I'm putting it in your account. So your sins have been paid for and God no longer holds them against us if we've trusted Christ as our savior. But then he puts to our account this righteousness of Christ. Whoa. You say, what what does that mean? That That doesn't mean that I'll no longer sin. It just means that when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That he sees one whose sins have been forgiven. They've been paid for. And so when I take my last breath on earth and I take my first breath in heaven as a believer in Christ, this person who sinned, whose life is dirty and rotten in sin, and then all of a sudden it comes into the presence of God, you say, ooh, does he see that nasty sin? Not at all. What he sees is Danny Wood clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And because he sees the righteousness of Christ, then he allows that to come into his heaven because that matches up with the perfection of heaven. Does that make sense? See, that's, that's how there's a difference. When I receive Christ as Savior, I'm not going on my own works and taking all my sins with me. I'm getting in there because he says, I've imputed the righteousness of Christ to you, Danny. And so... You are able to step into my heaven. You're able to come into my presence. You're able to spend eternity here in heaven. Wow. Okay, so go back to the ground rules for just a second. You ready? Sin results in death. Jesus died and he paid for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you repent of your sins, you accept him as Lord, you inherit eternal life in heaven and you will be in God's presence forever. That's the ground rules that he laid. God's holiness, God's justice, and God's love. But now let me tell you one more thing. If on the other hand, you reject Jesus and you decide to live life going your own way, then you will die in your sins and it will separate you from a holy and just God and you'll spend your eternity in hell. Let me tell you one thing, more thing about God's love. God loves you so much and he's so eager for you to love him that he allows you the freedom not to love him back. He loves you so much that he offers you the freedom of not to return that love. See, you can pursue someone to love them. You can go after them. You can call them. You can send them emails. You can write them letters. You can send them money and say, oh, I just love you. I love you. I want you to love me. And you know what? If they don't want to love you back, they're just not going to love you back. But now if you go and find them and you kidnap them and you bring them to your house and you lock them up in your house and say, I love you. I love you. And I'm going to spend here all this time with you. Guess what? They don't love you. They've been kidnapped and imprisoned. That's not love. God doesn't force you to love him. Now, he is already on record for how much he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He will pursue you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to not only have a relationship with you while you're here on earth so that you can bring honor and glory to his name and advance his kingdom, but he also would love to spend a relationship with you for eternity. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that loves you. But he loves you in such a pure love that he says, I'm not going to force you to love me back. You choose. 
You choose whether you want to love him back or not. He's not going to force you. And when the day's done and everything's over, ball's in your court. What are you going to do about that? One writer put it this way. Those who do not wish to love God must be allowed not to love him. And those who don't want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. This answers the question, why would a good God send people to hell? He doesn't. You choose to go there. God doesn't send anybody to hell. In fact, God's already paid for your ransom. God's paid all your sins. He's covered everything. He's just waiting for you to be able to make that decision. You see, hell is not some torture chamber that God has constructed to inflict pain on people that he doesn't like. Not at all. Hell is simply a place where God is not. So that people who don't want to spend eternity with him don't have to. Hell is an alternate destination for people who don't want to go to heaven. Hell is an alternate destination for people that don't want to go to heaven. And just think about it. Just be practical. God is a gracious God. If you don't want to do anything, if you don't want anything to do with him while you're living on earth, then you sure don't want to be with him for eternity. Thus, there needs to be a place for you. I said, I just don't, I just think, well, it's hard for me to understand. When people who live godless lives want nothing to do with God, and then people think that they would really be happy in heaven. Why? You don't even want to serve him while you're here. You don't want to go to church. You don't want to sing praises. You don't want to read your Bible. You want to live life your own way. And then all of a sudden when you die, then you think you want to spend eternity with this glorious God. Listen, if you don't worship him in, on earth, he, he understands. And he says, if you don't want to do that on earth, then you sure don't want to do it for eternity. That's the gracious God that we have. And he allows you to choose. And he has got hell as an alternate place for you to go. Because when you go to hell, you don't have to worry about God because he's not there. His presence isn't there. And in essence, your desires have come true. You want to live a godless life here on earth, don't want to have anything to do with him, then guess what? When you get to eternity, this gracious God says, I'll let you spend eternity in a place where I'm not even present. You don't even need to hear my name or anything, and that's your choice on there. The reality of hell. It is a reality because of God's holiness, his justice, and his love. You put all of those together, and you can see why there would be a hell. Let me ask you this. Let's talk a little bit about the place called hell. So what is it like? Okay, remember I told you Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. We're going to read this passage. I'm just going to give you some bullet statements just for you to get an idea about what hell is like. And when you read this, you're also going to see why this is not a subject that we enjoy preaching about because it's a... um, It's a subject that breaks your heart to know that there are people that will be suffering like this. It's a story found called The Rich Man and Lazarus, found in Luke 16, verse 19. It's a passage that some people believe is a parable. Others believe that it's a story. I lean more towards a story because he uses names in there. Never in a parable does he use names, but these are, are real names. So, uh, so let's just read it as that. Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says. 
There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now understand, the poor man died. Didn't say he was buried. Back then, poor people, they didn't get buried. Just got thrown off on the side. But it says the angels of God carried him to Abraham's side. Now that's a description of heaven. Heaven has different names. Sometimes it's called a city. Sometimes it's called a country. Sometimes it's called Abraham's side. Sometimes it's called paradise. But for the Jewish readers, uh, listeners over here, they understood what that meant. Abraham, the founder of the, of the, the father of, of Israel. I mean, this is, this is his side. It's a place of comfort. Okay. He says, but the rich man also died and was buried. Okay. Rich man had a big funeral. He was buried. And it says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So now he's in Hades, a place of torment. And as he looks up, he sees Lazarus, and then he's right there by the side of Abraham. And in verse 24, it says, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house as I have five brothers so they may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now the scene that he has painted here, and you need to first of all understand The rich man didn't go to Hades because he was rich, and Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he was poor. It's because of the life that they lived. And it's because the rich man, the things that he had, he didn't really have concerns for anyone else. It was all about himself. Those are things you could gather from reading about his life. But yet Lazarus was one that you would infer from here who was just faithful to God for whatever he had and was thankful to him. And when they died, both went in in different destinations. So what do you pick up from this about hell? Let me tell you. Let's walk through them. Number one, it's a place of torment and suffering. He started right out in verse 23. He was being in torment. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Torment and suffering. Number two, you're fully conscious. It's just not like you're just in some sleepy state. You don't really know what's going on, but you're fully conscious. He was conscious. He was conscious of his surroundings. He was conscious of the pain. Number three, He said there were flames. They're either literal or figurative, but they represent anguish. So whether you go literal or figurative on the flames, they do represent anguish. Number four is memory. He has memory. He saw Lazarus. He remembered Lazarus. He understood about Abraham. He remembered he had five brothers. 
So in hell, there could be a memory. Memory of all the things that you had done wrong. Memory of the opportunities that you had to have made a decision that would have not sent you to that destination. And number five is permanent hopelessness. There's no mercy. No mercy. I mean, how simple of a request. Can you just ask Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and just from the tip of his finger, can he come and put it on the tip of my tongue? I'm not asking for anything else. And see, a lot of us would say, well, that would make sense. That would be a a nice request. And what did he say? He said, no, no. He wouldn't even grant this simple request because God has no mercy for people who reject his son and die without Christ. Time for mercy is gone. Next, you cannot be comforted. There is no comfort. No matter what he said, no matter what he requested, there was no comfort. Next, there was unfulfilled concerns. There was still a concern about others, but that concerns could not be filled. He just has to constantly live with that. And the last, uh, excuse me, next to last is no exit. <laughs> no exit. No one gets in or out for eternity. He says there's a great chasm. You can't pass here. We can't pass there. It's not like, hey, after a couple of years, can we take a missionary trip from heaven and go down to hell and let's minister to the social needs of people and maybe we can bring them back with us. Not at all. Or maybe if I get into hell, some people say, I'm a pretty crafty person. Maybe I can escape. There is no escape. There is no exit. It is for eternity. And last of all and worst of all, the absence from the presence of God in all that is good. Absence from the presence of God and all that is good. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. When it says that you are shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power, you need to stop for just a moment and realize every good and perfect thing, a gift, comes from the Father above. God is the source of all good. Hell is the absence of God, which means hell is the absence of all that is good. And in the absence of God, hell will have no community, no camaraderie, no friendship. People talk about, hey, I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. No, you'll have no friends in hell because a friendship is based on some kind of goodness that you have for each other. In hell, it's just going to be selfishness. There is no good. So there is no camaraderie. There is no buddy-buddy. There is no drinking buddies. Let's just go out and and, uh, we'll tie down a few each night before we close it down. No, there is no camaraderie. There is no friends there. Every good thing is taken away. There's no love. There's no cheer. There's no forgiveness. There's no kindness. There's no sympathy. There's no understanding. There's no praise, no appreciation, no relief, no hope. Hell is a separation from God in all that is good. And that's what makes it so awful. And when you read different commentaries, and some people say, well, a part of it is that the demons of hell will torment you, you know, for eternity. And that could be true. And then others sit there and say, because all the goodness is gone, no camaraderie, hell is like solitary confinement for eternity. You see, Satan has obvious motives for fueling our denial of eternal punishment. He wants unbelievers to reject Christ without fear. I want to live my life like I want to, and when I die, hey, we're all going to end up in the same place. He wants Christians to be unmotivated to share Christ. 
And he wants God to receive less glory for the radical nature of Christ's redemptive work. This is what Satan does. And Satan tries to cloud this issue of hell and just keep telling you, don't worry about that. That's just some medieval mythology. No, it's not. It wasn't the medieval time or the Middle Ages when this came out. It came out straight out of God's word. It was out of the words of Jesus himself. And if we can trust the fact that Jesus went to heaven and has made a place for us, I got a feeling that you also got to trust that he said there is a hell and he warned you not to go there. And God laid the ground rules and he says, if you receive Christ, then you can spend eternity in heaven. So let me close by this. What's the impact of the reality of hell? The impact of reality of hell is twofold. Number one, for the non-Christian, I would say decide today to receive Jesus. You rub shoulders with eternity every day. And today needs to be a day of salvation. A verse that I want you to hold on to is this, Mark 8, 36 through 37. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Luke 16, this is what the man did. I mean, he was successful. He was rich. He probably met all the goals he wanted to meet while he was here on earth. But what he did was he exchanged it for his soul. And he spent eternity in torment in suffering. We need to understand the price has already been paid. And for those of you who've never made this decision for Christ, and, 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 and part of it is you look back over the sins that, that maybe you have been involved in or things that have happened in your past, that's been paid for. It's already taken care of. When Jesus died on the cross, it says he died for the sins of us and for the world. Your sins have been paid for. The offer is there. It's just you need to accept it. You know, it's like a convicted criminal can be offered a pardon by the governor. And sometimes you've seen that when they're getting ready to, to move into uh, their execution time and they're waiting to hear a phone call from the governor. And if a person who had done something, a heinous crime, and got right to the edge of the electric chair and all of a sudden the governor calls and says, hey, I'm giving them a pardon. And the person, the convict says, Nah, I'm not going to accept that. And then he dies. You've been given a pardon. Your sins have been paid for. What God is asking you to do is to accept that gift of salvation and then to live for him through all the years that God gives you here on earth. And for Christians, for us, we need to be more diligent in sharing our faith. The thing about the reality of hell is that it should remind us how important it is to share our faith with others because we're dealing with reality. We're dealing with heaven and we're dealing with hell. And the basic truth is there are only two possible destinations after death, heaven and hell. Each one is just as real and just as eternal as the other. And until we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we're headed for hell. And the most loving thing that we can do for our friends and family is to warn them about the road that leads to destruction and tell them about the road that leads to life. That's what we're to do. And so as believers, we don't take this subject lightly. And Jesus didn't either. And he shares us about it in Scripture so we'll know about it. And may that encourage us to find the people that we love, to find the people that we bump into during the day and just share God's, God's word with them and share our faith with them. 
and invite them and implore them to come to receive Christ as Savior. Nobody wants anyone to spend eternity in hell. But see, I can't make that decision for you. No one can. You have to make that decision. And it's either to accept the gift that God has given you or to reject that gift. And so it's my prayer that when you think about hereafter, that you will realize that what you do here will affect your after. And that while you're here, you'll consider the claims of Christ and make that decision. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I pray for each person that's here today. I pray for those that are watching us on live stream. And Father, I pray for those that will be watching this message uh, later on during this week and the weeks to come that your Holy Spirit would speak to every heart that watches this and listens to this. And Lord, may the reality of hell begin to take us off dead center as we begin to think about who Jesus is, what his claims are, and what I need to do with my life. If I'm praying that there's those today that are ready to get that done, that, Father, they know that even now, right now, they can say a prayer that is from their heart, that if they believe in their heart and they confess with their mouth that Jesus, who he says he is, and did what he said he did, what God's word says he did, that he would come into their hearts and they would be saved and they'd become a child of God. And I pray even right now, Lord, that they could be praying and asking you to come into, your, into their heart. Father, speak to us as believers and help us to be encouraged that the last thing that uh, Jesus said was that you're to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And may we start right in our own Jerusalem, in our own area, with our own family, with our own friends, and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we take all these things that have been said and we pray that your Holy Spirit would use them to move us to make decisions that would bring honor and glory to your name and would advance your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.